0: So tonight we're going to continue our our series in in worship and we started this last week and I I want to just briefly recap what we talked about last week as we look to start moving through Genesis to Revelation looking at what the Bible teaches about worship. And so where we started last week and, and where we finished, started and finished last week was Romans chapter 12. So if you want to open to Romans 12, Uh, with me. That's where we're going to start tonight. And again, just want to lay the foundation uh, for us before we start moving into Genesis. And we'll be in Genesis 1 and 2 in a little bit this evening. Last week, we answered the question, what is worship? What is worship? And we looked at how oftentimes uh, God's people have labeled worship as something you do in a specific time, in a specific place. We looked at John chapter 4, where the woman at the well um, came to Jesus and was talking about true worship, and Jesus, Jesus was talking to her about living water and true worship, and she brought up the issue of time and place, time and place. And Jesus Told her that the time is coming and is now here, is fulfilled. The time is upon us when people will not worship in a time and a place, but they will worship God in spirit and in truth. And so, uh, what we see is that even though Jesus told us that reality, that even oftentimes, us as Christians, we view worship as an event that takes place and takes place in a time and a place. We go to worship. We're here tonight to worship. But as we looked at Romans 12, let's just read it quickly. Romans 12, verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, how are we to do this? Well, he tells us in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And so in Romans 12, we see this, the, the clearest definition of worship is to submit our lives, body, soul, and spirit, our whole lives to the will of God. And Paul says, when we do that, that is Worship, bringing our lives into submission to God, that is true worship. Surrendering myself, all of me, this willful surrender. So therefore, where we concluded last week, therefore we should always be worshiping. All of life should be lived as worship as unto the Lord. All of life for the believer should be submitted to the will of God, right? What does it say? Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We looked at Romans chapter 1 that said that you will either worship the creator or you will worship part of creation. That the issue is not will you always worship, the issue truly is what direction will your worship head? Will it head towards the creator, the God, the one who deserves all of our worship and devotion? Or will it head towards some aspect of creation? Those are truly the only options. It's either we worship the creator or we worship some part of creation. Surrendering our lives to a part of his creation the Bible calls idolatry. We talked about last week how we don't see idols in the sense that we would think of them as graven images however there are there are there is worship that is always happening because we are worshiping people and there are there are mo- most people today probably you could say most people do not worship the creator but worship some part of creation they devote their lives to we talked a little bit about how, how sad it is that some people devote their lives to a sports franchise. What a, what, a, what a sad existence. We were created for more. We were created for more than to devote our lives to some, 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 some part of creation, rather to devote our lives to the Creator. That the focus of our existence is always headed towards something. So Jesus put it this way. Seek first the kingdom of God, which is to see the lordship of Christ, the rule and reign of Christ in every area of life. Jesus taught us to pray. When you pray, pray this way. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and as we seek first the kingdom of God, we are worshiping God. As we pray that prayer for his will and his kingdom to come and to be done in our lives. And as we get about living that way, we live all of our lives as worship unto the Lord. And so I mentioned last week that in every activity, we should we should find a way to do it in submission to God. And so I was talking with my brother Mitchell later in the week, and he was telling me how Last Sunday night, he went through the drive-thru, and he was sitting in the drive-thru thinking, how do I, how do I go through the drive-thru and, and, and do it as worship unto the Lord? How, how, do I, how do I do everything as worship unto God? And he was saying he was struggling a little bit with that, and I said, well, let me help you. Like, when they get your order wrong, you don't cuss them out, right? You, you show them kindness, you show them grace, you show them mercy, you show them love— We obey the commandments towards one another. When we do that, as in submission to God, we are worshiping God. We are distinct from the world in that way. And for some reason, it seems like the drive-thrus are having a harder and harder time getting our orders right. I don't know if that's your experience or the Lord is just chastening me. We talked about how we don't come to church to start worshiping, but we come to church to continue our worship, that we've been worshiping all week, living our lives in submission to God, and we come to gather together to join our singing, our praise, to worship God together with God. God's people that's what corporate worship is about joining together with the saints of God singing our praises to him together so that's that's the backdrop that's what true worship is living all of our lives in submission unto God and so let's go to Genesis chapter 1 as we're going to look at worship in the garden worship in the garden worship in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 1. That should be the first page of your Bible, Uh, if you're new, Genesis 1. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray you would speak to us tonight. Lord, give us ears to hear what it is you are saying to each one of us. We thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen. The Bible begins, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering, uh, brooding, if you will, over the face of the waters, ready to act. Verse 3 says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. We don't have time this morning to to walk through all of Genesis one, but I want to draw your attention to some things here. Number one is that God is our God is the God who speaks. This is the 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 one of the earliest contentions here is that God is not detached from creation somewhere, as some as some even Christians and uh, even some non-Christians who believe in God, they're called deists, they don't believe in the Christian God, they just believe in, in the concept of God. Um, they believe God as, as sort of this uh, creator that set creation in motion and then backed off. He, he's not at work in his creation. He's, he's off in the galaxy somewhere else, paying attention to somewhere else. He's not involved in his creation. The word of God clearly tells us that that is not the case, that God is working in his creation and that he is working through his word as he speaks and existence itself comes into existence and all of reality itself bends itself, bends the knee to obey God. So God says, let there be light and the light doesn't say, well, I don't know. I'm kind of busy right now, God. No, God says it and it happens. There's no discussion. There's no debate. There's no, let's go around the table and get everybody's input here on this. God says it and there it was. And you see this happen throughout the rest of the creation process. Verse six, and God said... And then you see in verse 7, the end of verse 7, and it was so. Verse 9, and God said. The end of verse 9, and it was so. Verse 11, and God said. Verse, the end of verse 11, and it was so. And, and there it goes on and on and on. God speaks and it is accomplished. And of course, the, the, the great mind-bending thought is that Jesus of Nazareth is the incarnate Word of God. That that the Word became flesh, that this command, this thought, this, this speech of God is encapsulated, becomes flesh, becomes humanity, puts on humanity in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so John, the, the writer of John, John, as he opens his gospel, he says, in the beginning was the word. And we see this here. And God said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is the word of God incarnate in flesh. It, it, when we try to think about that, it, it should literally make your head hurt. Because we're trying to comprehend as finite minds the infinite reality, the eternal realities of creation. But then it gets down to verse 26. This is where we'll zero in tonight. Verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves on the earth, and God said, behold, I have given to you every creeping, every, every plant yielding seed that is over the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth. When we start talking about worship in the Garden of Eden, what are we talking about? They didn't have hymnals, they didn't have instruments. Nevertheless, they worshiped God in the garden. Now, Genesis 2 zeroes in on that sixth day of creation and it tells in greater detail the story of how God created mankind. And it says in verse 6, verse 7 of Genesis 2, the Lord God formed the man of the dust, of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In verse 15, it says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you must surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make make him a helper fit for him. So here in verse 21, it says, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up his place with flesh, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he formed into a woman, brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And God said was the refrain over and over and over again. And then God directs his speech to humanity. God speaks to mankind. We were created in the image of God. We were designed to hear and obey the voice of God. God turns to mankind and he says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion. This is what we were created for. We're created to bear the image of God. Now, sin enters the world as this reality is called into question. When when sin enters the world in Genesis chapter 3, what does Satan come and say? Did God actually say? So, So here we have God said, God said, God said, God said, God said, the word of God proceeding forth from himself. And then sin enters the world as this reality is challenged, as this reality is called into question. You see, you and I were created to hear the voice of God and obey the voice of God. And Satan comes and he says, is that really the way the world works? Is that really how things happen here? Now, I want to look at life before the fall. Life in the Garden of Eden. Things before the fall, we we all live post-fall. We've all lived and only experienced life tainted with sin. Sin has infected and affected every area of life, and this is the only life that we've ever known. We, We live surrounded by sin, tainted by sin, We're born in sin, the Bible says. We're sinners by nature and we're sinners by choice. We don't know what life is like without sin. But here it describes for us a reality in Genesis 1 and 2 that was very different than the way things are today. The first we see is that in Genesis 2, 9, in the midst of the Garden of Eden, it says there was the tree of life. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. Now, I would ask you, what grows on the tree of life? Well, what grows on an apple tree? This is not a trick question. It starts with an A. Apples. Apples grow on apple trees. So what grows on a life tree? Life. Isn't that wild? Think about it. In the midst of the garden, there's a tree, and it grows, and what comes out of this tree is life. Here, after Adam and Eve sin in Genesis 3, God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden, and he says, we we have to put a flaming sword and an angel to, to guard the way to the tree of life. We see that in verse 22 of chapter 3. Lest he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man to the east of the garden and placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, why would God do this? Well, because it would be a very horrible thing to eat of the tree of life in our sinful state. To live forever in the state of of sin would be a great curse as as we would continually see and experience the, the effects of decay. And so God in His grace bars them from the tree of life in their sinful state. Nevertheless, they could see of the tree of life. Now we think of life as as something immaterial. We think of life as something spiritual, which it is. And so I want to submit to you that in the Garden of Eden, there was a a, a fullness of the spiritual life, even in what we would think of in the spiritual realm, where they could look at a tree and even see life on that tree. And even reach out and take of that life and eat of it. And of course, when we get all the way to Revelation, we'll see that, guess what's back in the city of God? The tree of life is there. The tree of life, all the way in the conclusion of when Christ returns, the tree of life will return as well. So they, they can see life. They can also apparently see knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil as there's a tree that's growing and producing that fruit, which they took and ate of that one instead of eating of the true life of God that he had provided for them. In Genesis 3, verse 8, after they sin, it tells us that God was walking in the midst of the garden and that they heard God walking in their midst. That before the fall, there's this idea that Adam and Eve lived and and walked with God in intimate and close fellowship. That there was this communion with God, this fellowship with God, this this exchange with God, this relationship with God that became broken because of sin. In Genesis 2.25, we saw that the man and the woman were both naked and they weren't ashamed and they weren't afraid and this wasn't a problem. Think about what the world must have been like to not need any protection from the elements, that all of life existed as perfect harmony, that you could walk through the world and and not experience pain and not experience cuts and not experience sorrow, that you didn't, we didn't need protection from the elements why? Because even the elements were in perfect harmony with the way God had created the world to be. Now, of course, today the Earth is a dangerous place. But before the fall, the Earth was paradise. The Earth was paradise. Now after the fall, even the, the elements of creation are placed under the curse of sin. We see that in Genesis 3:17, that now the Earth is going to produce thorns and thistles. Now, as Romans 8 says, 8.22, that even creation is groaning, waiting for redemption. That, that sin has even infiltrated all the universe now. In Genesis 23, uh, 2.23, Genesis 2.23, when Adam says this, he says, when he sees Eve, he says, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In our Bibles, in our English translation, that is set out. I don't know if you can see how that is um, demarked from the rest of the text. It's because it's written as poetry. It's it's a song. So there are those who have speculated that before the fall, and this is the only example we have of before the fall of human speech. This is Adam. Speaking when he sees Eve. The only example we have of pre-fall human speech is in the form of a poem or a song. And there are some that have speculated that all communication before the fall was singing. That all of all of communication between Adam and Eve, between God and man, that it was all song. That they sang to one another. When you think about singing, what does singing represent? Singing is incredibly emotive. Singing is, from the depths of our heart, we break into song. Singing is the most intimate form of vocal expression. When we sing, in, in in a sense, we're making our souls vulnerable I don't know if you've ever sang to someone before. I don't know if they've ever told you to stop. Some of us have a wonderful singing voice. Some of us just have a voice. But it is is the most intimate form of communication is song. And it's the only example we have of human speech pre-fall. So there are those who have speculated that all of life was a song before the fall. What a thought. What a thought. You married couples, your family should go home and try to spend a whole week just singing to each other. I wonder what your arguments would look like. That would make for some interesting discussion, wouldn't it? Can you pass the ketchup, please? You know, we'll try that when we get home. I will report back to you on how that goes. And so what did worship look like before the fall? Again, they didn't have instruments. They didn't have hymnals. How did they worship God? As image bearers of God, humanity is the only one of God's creation who is a spiritual being. We are spiritual beings. We saw that in Genesis 2 when God forms Adam, and Adam from the dust. And, and there he is. This mannequin, if you will, lifeless until God comes and breathes his spirit into Adam. And Adam, it says, becomes a living soul at that moment. What's interesting is in both Hebrew and in Greek, both the language for breath and spirit are the same word. The same word for spirit, the same word for breath are the exact same word. So when it says that God breathed into Adam, it literally means that God put his spirit into him. And at that moment, he became alive. And when we die, what is it that happens? When we die, our our spirit is separated from our body. When we die, there's this separation that takes place. When God breathed his life, his breath, his life force into Adam, he became a living soul. God didn't do this with any one, any of the other creations. It's only mankind that is a spiritual being. I've been asked many times if dogs will be in heaven. Yes, of course, but definitely not cats is the way. I'm just joking. I don't care. I don't care. I have equal disdain for all pets. Anyway. Maybe. Maybe they'll be in heaven. I, I don't I don't see why there wouldn't be other creatures in the new heavens and the new earth. But will your dog be there? Ah, uh, probably not. No. <laughs> probably not. Sorry. They're not created in the image of God. They don't have an eternal spirit. They don't have the breath of God in them. And it's that spirit that's inside of us that before the fall existed in, in perfect unity, body and spirit. When Adam and Eve sinned, hear me in this. This is the important part. When Adam and Eve sinned, an artificial wedge was driven between the spiritual life and the natural life, a wedge that was foreign. And so as image bearers of God, humanity is the only one of God's creations who is a spiritual being, and so therefore we are created to have fellowship with God, intimacy with God. Jesus says in his prayer in John 17 that knowing God is eternal life. We were created to know God, to reflect His glory to all of creation. Like a mirror reflects light, we were created to reflect God. God's nature, God's character, God's attributes lived through us, displaying the glory of God, the character of God. And in this fellowship, with God, God gave humanity direction. He gave humanity His commandments. He spoke to us to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to have dominion. He gave all of creation to humanity, that, that through humanity, God's glory would be put on display as they lived under God's rule and reign and obeyed Him. God said, don't eat of this tree, eat of these trees. He gave humanity his word. And this is how they worshipped. As they submitted their will to God's will, they worshipped. It's the same as we looked at it in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Present your bodies to God as your spiritual act of worship. Present your whole life to God under His dominion, under God, obeying God, as we were to created to reign over creation, yet we were to do it under the law of God. And everything was perfect, and everything was in perfect unity with, with, with creation, the, the, the earth, the, the world, the, the natural realm, the spiritual realm, everything in perfect harmony in unity. And then the challenge comes, did God actually say? And Eve is tempted to not obey God and live under his rule and reign, but, she, but he tells her, you will be like God, you be like God. Don't follow his word, you follow your own desires. And when that happened, I said this wedge, an artificial wedge, is driven between the spiritual and the natural life. A wedge that was foreign to God's creation so that when they ate of the tree, though they were physically alive, they were at that point spiritually dead. And so, all of us likewise, when we are born, we are born physically alive, but we are born spiritually dead as descendants of Adam. We are born in sin. We are conceived in sin. We are born dead spiritually. And so, Jesus says to Nicodemus, You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. We must be born again. But the problem, and and here's where I want to zero in tonight, the problem is that even often after we've come to Christ, we've been born again and our spiritual life revived now with the Spirit of God living on the inside of us, we still live with that artificial wedge driven between the natural life and the spiritual life. We don't understand that these two are not two separate things, but in fact, they are to be the same thing. So before we are born again, we are driven by the desires of our flesh, the desires of our body. But after we are regenerated and filled with the spirit and the life of God, the spiritual life of God should become the driving force of our lives just as it was before the fall, just as it was in the Garden of Eden, where we are now in communion with God, in relationship with God, and the force, the power of our life comes from that fellowship and that union with God. I want to look at Romans chapter 8 as we conclude tonight. Romans chapter 8. It talks about these two ideas Adam and Eve, they worshiped God as they lived under his commandment and they they glorified him and exhibited his nature and his character. Sin entered the world as they rejected that. Jesus comes into the world to restore that broken fellowship. And so Romans 8 verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verse five, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the life of the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit which dwells in you. There's an artificial wedge driven into humanity because of sin, where the spiritual and the natural are separated. And so before Christ, we live in the natural realm. We, we follow the desires of our heart, the desires of our flesh, the desires of our body. We are at enmity with God. But now, he says, now no condemnation. Now with what Christ has done, he has done what the law could not do. Not because there was a problem with the law, but the law was weakened by sinful flesh. And so Jesus comes in the likeness of sinful flesh, though he never himself sinned, and he fulfills the righteous requirements of the law so that we can be in him declared righteous and now filled with his spirit, filled with the spirit of the one who fulfilled the law, filled with the spirit of the one who fully submitted himself to the will of the Father, now we are filled with that Spirit. And we are called upon to live out of the overflow of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So we are not to live according to the flesh anymore or to set our minds, he says, verse 5, on the things of the flesh, but rather to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Because those who set their minds on the flesh it produces death but the mind set on the spirit produces life and peace. And he says we are not of the flesh but of the spirit. If in fact his spirit dwells in us and he concludes by saying that the spirit of God will even give life to our mortal bodies. And we tend, to think in, we tend to think the other way. We tend to think in terms of what I do somehow produces results in my spiritual life, that I can earn my salvation. Religion, of course, says what we do earns our salvation. This says it's totally the other way around. That God has done, puts his spirit inside of us, And then we now walk and live out of that spirit. This is what Adam and Eve were designed to do. This is what God is now doing in us through Christ. You see, receiving Christ isn't simply a pathway to heaven. Receiving Christ is the pathway to being fully human. To be fully human to be fully alive now is to receive Christ and so we must not live with this artificial separation between life and spirit that i have my spiritual life my walk with the lord and then i have my my other life over here that that's not the way god designed us to live And so we must remove that wedge in our mind. We must let our mind be renewed, our thinking renewed, so that we draw from the spiritual that produces life in our natural. That we live in fellowship and communion with God, listening to the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. Day by day, moment by moment, we can have fellowship and communion with God as we are led by the Spirit of God not led by the simple feelings of our flesh. And the lesson from Adam and Eve, the lesson of worship in the garden is that our spiritual life should drive our natural life, not the other way around. That our spiritual life is the source of our natural life. Again, this is upside down from the way the world thinks. We are born dead in sin, and we have to be reborn through Christ. And so we must continually repent of this way of thinking. We must repent of, of living in the flesh, but instead we must live and walk according to the Spirit of God. Now there are many temptations every single day to do one or to do, to do one, to walk in the flesh. Even as our young people head back to school, there's going to be temptations there. There are going to be people who are drawing us, trying to draw you, students, into a life of the flesh. But remember, you are born again. You are a child of God. You are baptized into the kingdom. We do not follow the course of the flesh. We do not walk after the things of the flesh because we are created in the image of God, filled with the spirit of God. And when we submit our lives to him, whether at church or at school or at home, when we obey his word and obey his will, we're following after Christ who obeyed fully the word and will of God. And when we do that, we worship God. Amen. I invite you to stand with me as we close tonight. I invite the worship team to come. And uh, before the kids, before the kids rush the stage, as it's been a few weeks since we've had our kids do their dance before the Lord, I just want to pray for us. And specifically, I, I just want to pray that God would give us this revelation about where in our lives have we drawn this artificial, put this artificial wedge? Where, where in our lives have we said, God, you can have this part of my life, but you can't have that part? God, I'll, I'll serve and obey you. I'll submit to you over here, but not here. We need to let the life of God, the spirit of God, the word of God infiltrate every area of our life if we're going to truly worship God, if we're going to truly image God. For truly going to fulfill the purpose for which we were created. So, Father, we just thank you that you show us in your word what it truly means to be human, what it truly means to be fully alive. Lord, not just alive physically, but alive spiritually. And through Christ, you have produced that spiritual life in us. Lord, help us through the power of your spirit to surrender and submit to you fully in every area of life. Lord, if there's any area of life where we have hardened our hearts or, or failed to, to bring it under your lordship, submit it to your word. Lord, help us to do it and to do it with joy in willful submission and do it as worship unto you. And Lord, we know that when we do that, you are glorified. Your light shines forth through our lives. And as your light shines through us, you touch the world around us that is in so much darkness. Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth in every area of our life. And help us to submit to you, body, soul, and spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.